Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Starting a new series today through the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I love uh, this place. There's a couple of them in the Atlanta area. Top Golf. Anybody ever played Top, top Golf before? Uh, man, I love Top Golf. Uh, and so Top Golf is like a driving range. Uh, you, first, you should know I'm terrible at golf. All right, let's just get that out of the way. I'm not a very great golfer. It's a driving range. Uh, slash like kind of video game sort of thing. And so you drive the ball, but there's all these different targets. If you hit a target, you get a certain number of points. There's a variety of games that you can play at Top Golf. But no matter what the game is or what the objective is or what the point is of the particular game, I do the same exact thing every swing. I just try to hit that ball as hard as I think and can. I don't care about the points. I don't care about the targets. I just want to see it hit this trench thing they have all the way in the back. That's all I care about. Which means if you're playing with me, you'll get frustrated. Because you're like, Brandon, you are kind of missing the point here, right? Like, you got to hit each target, and we're getting green this time, and red, we're missing out on points. And to that, I just always say, man, I don't really care. What I want to do is hit this golf ball as hard as I stinking can. When we come to Ephesians chapter 1 today, the danger as we dive into this passage is that we would miss the point. And so I want to make it very clear to you today that there is a point, and I don't want you to miss it. We're going to have to talk about some difficult and complicated things on the way to get there, but please... Don't follow my top golf example and miss out on what this passage is actually trying to teach us. All right? Does that make sense? So let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. More than likely, uh, this is a letter that's meant to be passed around to several churches in that region. Ephesus at this point in time is the fourth or fifth largest city in the world. It's a hub of commerce and trade. It's also a center of pagan worship. So there's a temple there to the goddess, the, the goddess Artemis, uh, which is a source of pride for the Ephesians. It is a culture in Ephesus of materialism, sensuality, and wild religious practices. Does that sound familiar? Right? Kind of sounds like where we live. A lot of materialism, a lot of sensuality, a lot of people doing some wild stuff that I don't always understand. And Paul is writing this letter to let these churches know you've got a new life in Jesus. And then you've been put into a new community in the family of God. And then there's some ways that you need to live differently. Why? Because you've got a new life and you belong to a new people. That's the big idea. So here's where he starts. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us 
for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, I know already today some of you have questions and hesitations. Some of you perhaps are on the verge of panic. What is Brandon going to say today about these terms? He chose us. In love, he predestined us. Before we get to those questions, and we will, I want to remind you about the very clear purpose of this paragraph. What's he say in verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So as we dive into some difficult stuff, don't miss the point. The point, Paul says, is that he is going to list for us spiritual blessings, realities about God, and realities about people who have trusted Jesus Christ and Lord as Lord and Savior, and he doesn't want you to miss these beautiful spiritual realities. We often think about blessings as physical or financial, right? We say things like, God bless me with a new car. Praise Jesus. God bless me with a new boyfriend or girlfriend. For some of you, that's a major hallelujah, okay? Let's be honest. God bless me with a new job. But here, Paul is pointing to a spiritual realities. You have been blessed. Why? Because of the nature of your new relationship with God. Spiritual blessings, every single one. So, before we move on, let's just get this big idea. God choosing you, parentheses, whatever that may mean, is a blessing to you. Don't miss it. As we unwind this, I want you to see clearly, whatever we talk about and wherever you park on this very controversial and complicated issue, it is meant or intended to be a blessing to you. So now let's tackle the question that you're asking. What is the deal with predestination? What does that mean? Well, some good news. There's actually a lot of agreement around this phrase. In fact, nearly every Christian faith tradition teaches or holds to some sort of understanding about predestination. All of those who agree that people are predestined to salvation in some way. Let me say that again clearly. Nearly every faith tradition that you have ever interacted with in your entire life agrees that people are predestined to salvation in some way. And the reason because this term predestination is in the scripture numerous times, along with words like God choosing us, God electing people, the elect, and God foreknowing. And all of these terms indicate that God in some way not only knows the future, but is in control of the future. And so this future isn't just about wars and government, the end of the world, but he knows the future of individuals' salvation. Now, the differences then mainly lie in how people understand the term predestination. There are two big camps. Uh, there are two big camps, and there are a ton of people who disagree in between, around, and in all of those camps. Does that make sense? But two big camps that I want you to know about this morning. The first one is 
typically called classical Arminianism. Some people might call this a free will position. Here's what they believe. Certain people are predestined to salvation. What they mean is this, that God knows all things, including the future, and that while we see time in a linear fashion, God sees past, present, and future all at the same time. So then God knows, or he foreknows, and knew before creation those who would be saved. He knows then what they would articulate is who will freely respond in faith. So those people that he already knows in the future will respond in faith are people that they would say are elect or predestined. So these include traditions like the Methodists, Wesleyan traditions, many Pentecostal traditions, Free Will Baptists, some other Baptists, and the Catholic Church. They would summarize their position in this way. This is important. God conditionally elects people to be saved that he knows will choose salvation in the future. Does that make sense? God conditionally elects people to be saved that he already knows will choose freely to place their faith in Jesus sometime in the future. That's the condition. The condition of his electing people to salvation is that they will place their faith in Jesus in the future. Does that make sense? That's position number one, big position. Big position number two is often called the reform tradition. Some people might call it Calvinism or sovereign grace position. God, in this position, predestines certain people to be saved. You know what they mean? They mean that God knows all things, including the future. And while we see time in a linear fashion, God sees the past, present, and future all at the same time. Sounds like some agreement there, right? Here's the difference. And that God is sovereign. That word sovereign means limitless in his control. That God does what he intends to do and cannot do anything but what he intends to do. God is sovereign over all things, including the free choices of people. This position is held by Presbyterians, Lutherans, some Anglicans, and a lot of Baptists. And the summary would be this. God unconditionally elects people to be saved, not based on foreseen faith, but based on his own, own good purpose. Does that difference make sense? So one position would say God sees in the future. He knows who freely is going to choose him. And so that's how he knows who will be saved. The other position would say, no, it's not conditioned on anything. God unconditionally elects people to be saved. So the question is, does God see my future faith and so elect or choose me based on that condition? Or does God choose me out of his own accord, not based on my future decisions? And as you can imagine... There's a lot of debate, some controversy. If you bring this up on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, you're probably going to be defriended by some people, all right? There's a lot going on in this. This has split churches. This has split denominations. This has caused families to get in serious arguments with each other. But I want you to see in both positions, there's an unbelievable amount of mystery, that both positions have some unanswered questions. Both positions have some things that they are going to struggle to explain. For some, how God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility fit together is really difficult so that God can remain sovereign over all things. For some, the way it fits together is really difficult and how we could remain free in all things. 
And so there is a great deal of mystery, or as we talked about last week from 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a mirror dimly. It's hard for us to understand everything that's going on here. Why? Well, because the mind of an eternal, all-knowing, completely sovereign being is fairly foreign to us. I know some of you think you are brilliant. I know that. Some of you are brilliant compared to me, right? But when it comes to understanding the way a sovereign, eternal, limitless being operates, it starts getting pretty confusing. So what does Mercy Hill believe? Here's our statement of faith. This is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Election is the great, gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates. That means gives a new heart. Justifies, that means put in a right relationship with God. Sanctifies, that means conforms people to the image of Jesus. And glorifies, uh, that means people are going to be resurrected to a glorified body, completely whole one day. So election is a gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means and connections with the end. It is a glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. So as you can see in this statement, it's pretty broad. It affirms election is based on God's grace, that election is dependent on God's purpose, that is consistent with the free agency of man, uh, which means it doesn't prevent people from making real and meaningful decisions, and that election includes not just people who are saved in the end, but how they were saved, the ends and the means. So God is sovereign both over saving and over the proclamation of the gospel. It incorporates elements of both positions while affirming both man's ability to choose and God's sovereign grace. And so here's where that makes us at Mercy Hill, puts us. We got people in both camps and everywhere in between. Does that make sense? We got people in both camps and everywhere in between. And this issue for us is not a divisive issue at Mercy Hill. To attend here or to belong here or to be a part of the fellowship here, we are not waving the flag of one position or the other. Here at Mercy Hill, we say, here's what we want to agree on. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, God's grace alone, to his glory alone. And we're all going to get around that. And that means this is not an area where we just have knockdown, dragout fights with each other. This is an area where we can disagree with each other. This is an area where you can have a personal conviction and you have it as strong as you feel it. But around this issue, we treat each other with love and respect because not only is the unity of our church more important than what we believe about this particular thing, but the gospel of Jesus is more important about what we believe. And so we want to maximize what's incredibly clear and where we can have debate, we're going to have debate. So you're probably asking the question, well, Brandon, what, what about you? Right? It might be important. Okay. <clears throat> so here's uh, the deal. My reformed friends say I'm not nearly reformed enough. My non-reformed, more Arminian friends, think I'm too radically reformed. In fact, several years ago at Mercy Hill, I coffee with a college student 
And over coffee, he informed me there was no way he could ever attend our church because we were way too reformed. And then I had a church member call me and say, oh, hey, I had some friends who were interested in coming, but I told them to go somewhere else because this church is not going to be nearly reformed enough for them. So as you can see, we're kind of threading the needle here, all right? Personally, I am more in the reformed camp on this issue. I want to be clear. There are some things taught in reform circles that I would not wholeheartedly affirm. However, when it comes to the question of unconditional election or conditional election, it seems to me that election is most often spoken about in the scripture as being unconditional. That God saves regardless of me. That God acts regardless of me. That it is not my merits, my actions, my choices that have anything to do with the way that God saves. That God initiates, God loves first, that God is sovereign over all things. Years ago for me, this really just came down to one single question. If I'm going to make a mistake, which way do I want to make a mistake? If I'm going to make a mistake, which way am I going to make a mistake? Am I going to make a mistake in a way that exalts God and his sovereignty and his goodness and his purpose and his plan? Or am I going to make a mistake that exalts my complete freedom and my autonomy and my ability to choose? And so I just said, if I got to make a choice, this is the mistake I'm going to make. That God's sovereign over all things. And then I am just going to deal with the tension and the mystery of how this all works together. So I would wholeheartedly affirm that God is sovereign over all things, including the salvation of people, and that man is a free moral creature who makes meaningful choices and decisions. And I just have to hold those things in tension together. That's where I park. Now, here's good news at Mercy Hill. You do not have to park there to belong here. Does that make sense? What I believe is not the most important thing on this issue at our church. It's just simply not. So several months ago in a membership class, my son Hudson, who's 14 now, was attending the membership class, so this topic came up. And I would like just to try to explain this to you the way I explained it to my 14-year-old. After the class, he's like, uh, dad, what the heck are we talking about? Right? Like, I'm pretty confused. Some people ask some crazy questions. What's going on? So we talked about it all the way home. We got home. We just sat down. We opened up the Bible. First, we read Romans chapter 9 together. If you've read Romans chapter 9, it seems to teach that God chooses to save people completely unconditioned on the, kid, the person, their faith. And then we read Romans chapter 10 together. Which Romans chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I said, Hudson, why do you think these two passages are together? Do you think Paul just forgot? Right? You think Paul was like lost his mind for a second? You, you think the Holy Spirit was just being unattentive? at this moment in time to inspire Paul to write these things down? Or do you think God purposely put these two things together so that we would see they're both necessary to believe and that we have to hold on to both? And so he said, uh, well, dad, wait, um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get this straight. What, what if somebody wants to accept Jesus, 
could they not accept Jesus because God didn't choose them? And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So mercy, he'll listen to me. There has never been in the history of the world a single person, not one, who has wanted to place their faith in Jesus who has not been saved. There's never been a single person who's called on Jesus' name for salvation who has not been saved. Not one in the history of all time. Never happened. God has never turned someone away who longed to place their faith in Christ. And he goes, well, wait, but what about, what about the other thing? And I said, well, also it's equally true. Romans 9, 14 through 16 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So verse 16, so it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And it is equally true that there is no person on the face of the planet who has ever received mercy from God, whom God did not freely, by his own good purpose, choose to extend mercy to them. And both of those things are true. When I was a college student, my pastor at the time, Bill Ricketts, explained it this way. That in this mystery of how these two things work together, if you imagined a doorway, that on one side of the doorway it says, whosoever will may come. Anybody who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. And then once you walk through the doorway, through faith, accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior, you look back and in this mystery on the other side of the doorway, it says, chosen before the foundations of the earth. And I don't know how those two things fit together perfectly. But I do know the scripture teaches both. And I do know we have to hold on to both. And I do know that these are both intended to be a what? A blessing to us. This is a lengthy quote from Spurgeon, but I think he gets it right. So I'm just going to read the whole thing because he can say it better than me. He says this, the system of truth is not one straight line, but two. No man will ever get a right view of the gospel until he knows how to look at the two lines at once. I am taught in one book to believe that what I sow, I shall reap. I am taught in another place that it is not him, that not of him who willeth, nor of man that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. I see in one place that God presiding over in all providence, and yet I see and cannot help seeing that man acts as he pleases, and that God has left his actions to his own will in a great measure. Now, if I were to, to declare that man were so free to act that there was no precedence of God over his actions, I should be driven to very near atheism. If, on the other hand, I declare, declare that God so overrules all things as that man is not free enough to be responsible, I am driven at once to antinomianism or fatalism. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are to believe, they are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not, he says. Listen to this. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. The two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly, he says, that leads me to imagine these true, 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 two truths can never contradict each other. 
These two truths, I do not believe, can ever be wielded into one upon any human anvil. Here's what he means. That on this side of eternity, it's going to be very difficult for us to see how they fit together. But, he says, one shall they be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that in the mind that shall pursue them the farthest, they will never discover how they converge. But they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God, whence all truth does spring. And that is where I park. Now, let's don't miss the point. Because the point here isn't your finely tuned theological position. Listen, doctrine is good. Theological rigor is good. Thinking through the text is good. Wanting to get it right is good. But we can miss the point, like me at Top Golf, if we just debate theological positions because of this text. What's the point? The point is that God chose you and adopted you into his family. That you are blessed because God chose you, that you are blessed because God predestined you, that you are blessed because God foreknew it all. This is such a great blessing. The God of the universe freely chose to adopt you into his family. Not under compulsion, not because he was out of choices, not because he felt obligated, but because he loves. That's what the text says. And so this truth should lead us to three places. This is quick. So if you're taking notes, three places. Number one, this truth is intended to lead us to worship. Look at how Paul starts, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at how he ends in verse six. To the praise of his glorious grace. This passage is first and foremost about worship. Before it's about theological debates. It is not intended to stir up a theological dispute, but to stir up the affections of our heart. Before it is about the particulars of who, when, and how God saves, it is an expression of Paul's gratitude and praise to the God that does save. He's praising God here. And he's telling us why we should praise God as well. And so no matter where we fall in this debate, this is unbelievable. God chose you and decided to adopt you into his family. God has made you an object of his love and affection. God has initiated a relationship with you. First John says we love because God first loved us. And God in his infinite wisdom has poured out his grace. We see God's character in this passage. He loves, he's sovereign over all things, he's wise and gracious. And more than that, we see that character in action towards his people. In love, he has a sovereign plan to save us. In his sovereignty, he chose to redeem us. In his wisdom, he put this plan to rescue us through Jesus into action before the foundation of the world. In his grace, he did it all. Not based on our merit, but his own goodness. Praise God. And that's what this text is meant to do for your heart. For you to look at it, be so overwhelmed by the beauty of it, you just go, God deserves a praise. To the praise of his glorious grace. 
Secondly, this truth is intended to conform us to the image of Christ. Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, what? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That God chose to adopt people into his family so that they could be holy, so they would have personal conduct in lives that look like Jesus. Chose you so that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so this doctrine of election is not an, it's an incentive to holiness. It's not an excuse to sin. God didn't choose to adopt you in his family so then you could go out and do your own thing. He isn't giving you eternal fire insurance so you're good. So that you could say, man, I'm, I'm good now. I did it. I said the prayer. I'm straight. Now I can just go do whatever I want. No, what's the purpose? God saved you and then he brought you into his family as a son or daughter so that you could in this family look increasingly more like Jesus, his son. This is how we change. How do you change? A strict moral code? My eighth grade Georgia history teacher, Mr. Hood, had a list of rules over the chalkboard, 50 rules. He called them Hood's 50. It's one of my favorite teachers I've ever had, but these rules are bonkers. Do you know what knowing Hood's 50 got me? Five bonus points at the end of the semester. Do you know what it didn't do? It didn't change my heart at all. But you know what did shape my heart more than anything? Belonging to my family. Right? Belonging to the Nichols family shaped my affections, shaped my desires, shaped what I did on a daily basis, shaped the way I interacted with people. It shaped almost everything about me. So why do you think God included you into his family instead of just giving you a list of rules? To change our very hearts that we would look increasingly more like Jesus. There's a part of the family that we would be looking to our older brother and going, yes, that's what I want to be. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my own real identity? My own real destiny? He says, I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day near. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. He says this to us. Say it over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning, last thing at night. As you wait for the bus and anytime your mind is free, ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows that it is all utterly and completely true. For this is the Christian secret of a happy life. Yes, certainly, he says, but we have something both higher and more profound to say. This is the Christian secret to a Christian life of a God-honoring life, that these are the aspects of the situation that really matter. And he prays, may this secret become fully yours and fully mine. You want to change. It starts with allowing the truth that you belong to the very family of God, adopted into his family by his grace. It starts with that settling into your heart. This is intended to produce praise, It's intended to conform us to the image of Jesus. Lastly, it's intended to produce humility in us. Look at verse five. Predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of his will. To the praise of what? His glorious grace. 
If this is according to the purpose of his will and the praise of his glorious grace, guess who it's not according to the purpose of? You. And guess who it's not to the praise of? You. Occasionally, I'll meet a young college student or a young adult who kind of stumbles on this idea of election and gets lost in it. And then they become crazy people. Sometimes people call it the cage stage, which means they talk so much about this stuff and talk down to people in such a way that you need to lock them in a cage for a while until they just get over it. Listen, friends, if that's you, do not miss this. Look at me. This truth is not to puff you up or to make you proud or to make you think you're smarter than everybody else or that you got a big brain and everybody else can't understand the scripture like you. This is meant to humble you. It's not to the praise of your glory. It's to praise of God's glory. The doctrine itself teaches it's not about you. No matter where you fall on the scale, it's not about you. It's always a plan that God initiated to save regardless of you. And so the only option for us is to humble ourselves before a good and gracious God. So this is intended to praise. It's intended to produce enough real life change to make us look like Jesus. And it is intended to humble us. Do you see now why this is an unbelievable spiritual blessing? Why that's the point. It means that God has given us the fuel we need to praise him rightly. And God has given us the family we need to be conformed to his image. And God has put us in our place in a way that we need it and we didn't even know it. It's amazing. So where does that, where do we land today? Well, for those of you who don't know Jesus, there's good news for you today. Your salvation Your forgiveness, your adoption into the very family of God is not based on your own merit or your own worthiness whatsoever. You can today come to faith in Christ. How do I know that? Romans 10, 13. Here's what I know to be true. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that invitation is extended to you today. Your sin has separated you from God. Your sin has caused you to live a life that God never intended for you to live. Your sin is building up like a debt inside of you. And there is a way for you to be forgiven of that sin, for you to be put in a right relationship with God, to be adopted into God's family, and for your eternity to be secure. And the way is the only way. It's call on the name of Jesus to save you. And so there is good news for you today. You can be saved. And it is not conditioned on if you are a good person. It is simply will you respond to Jesus in faith. For some of us, We struggle with doubts. Some of us who are believers, this text, other places, believing that God's at work in our world around us, we start to doubt. Maybe we lose assurance. We start to question, am I in or out? Am I really belong to God or not? If that's you today, I want to remind you of this unbelievable truth. 
that if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were adopted into the very family of God and God decided it before you were even born. And if your merit or your good works didn't get you into the family, do you really think they can get you out? And so when you doubt your place, don't look to yourself, look to the scripture and go, no, 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 here's what I know. Even though it doesn't feel like it right now, I am overwhelmed with doubts about myself. Here's what I know, that in love, he predestined me for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. And then for those of us this morning who want to change, And we're tired of the way our lives have been. We don't look anything like Jesus. And we started off following Jesus really well, but then we got off track. Fifth grade, man, you were on fire. You got to middle school, and all of a sudden, just off track. If your high school friends knew about you in college, they would be shocked. You started working a job, raising a family. You look back, you're 43 years old, and you're like, what am I doing? I'm not the person that I set out to be. It's good news. 10 years old to 97 years old. You can change. You can be increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus. You can look more and more like Jesus. You can be a gracious and forgiving person. You can love your neighbor. You can conduct yourself with humility and integrity. How? By remembering over and over again this truth. By preaching this to yourself Every single day, like J.I. Packer said, when you get up in the morning, you remind yourself, I am a child of God. I belong. And you allow that reminder to stir up the affections and gratitude in your heart and see if that doesn't start to change. And I could give you 50 rules, but that would be missing the point, wouldn't it? The point is we want our hearts to be different. And that is available to you. Here's where it starts. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.